Welcome back to All Things Mysterious, where we discuss true crime, supernatural, and why Chesters suck. I'm Matt. And I'm Jordan. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Jordan. Have you ever heard of a little-known, um, very few people have heard of it, but um, the Amityville Horror House? Amityville. You know, it... <sighs> It kind of rings a bell. I mean, they only made like three or four blockbuster movies. I several feel like books. maybe I have. Yeah. Eh, well, in this story, don't worry, because I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. Everything I need to know. Okay. All right. I am prepared to learn. We are going to delve in deep into the darkest corners of the infamous house on 112 Ocean Avenue. There's a place on Ocean Avenue. I'm sorry. This address nestled in Amityville, Long Island, New York, has become synonymous with horror and the paranormal. While many know the tale of the Lutz family harrowing experience, today I'm going to shine a spotlight on the tragic and mysterious story of the DeFeo family. But don't worry, we'll get into the paranormal too. But first, picture this. The year is 1965. And the DeFeo family of Brooklyn, New York, takes a leap of faith and moves into their new home at 112 Ocean Avenue. Which Every time you say that, my brain's going to go to that song. I'm so (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Mine is too now. You're welcome. They affectionately called the house High Hope. Well, that's going to be a letdown, I feel like. However, Jordan, not all was well within the house. Really? And their problems were far from paranormal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to be all serious here. I'm making faces. I'm sorry, you guys. What is this? I'm going to take a picture of what I have to look like, look across the table at because she randomly just makes faces at me. I can't help it. It's just, Matt's trying to be so serious and he makes faces and he doesn't know that he's making faces. So I make faces back at him. Okay. Anywho, <sighs> serious face. All right. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was a service manager. And his wife, Louise. At his wife, Louise's family car dealership. That's what I was trying to say. He was a domineering figure, both verbally and physically abusive to his family, particularly targeting his eldest son, Ronald Jr. The DeFeo household was often described as a crazy house with frequent shouting matches and violent altercations. That can't be good. Oh, I mean, obviously not. <laughs> but it gets worse. I thought the 60s were a time of peace. Not in this household, and it Apparently wasn't. not. Ron Jr.'s life took a dark turn as he grew older. His temper becoming more volatile than his father's. And due to his behavior, 
he was asked to leave Amityville High School at age 17. Thus begun his journey into substance abuse. Including, not limited to, LSD and heroin. It escalated his erratic behavior. And his expulsion from Amityville High School marked a turning point. And he became a frequent patron of the Chatterbox, a local haunt where his violent outbursts were well documented. His parents became concerned and even sent him to psychiatrist. After psychiatry failed, they resorted to giving him whatever he wanted, including a speedboat. He and his father still had their usual violent fights, even as Ronald Sr. placated his son, son with money and material possession. Okay, that's great. We can't fix you with psychiatry, so we're going to give you all the things you ever wanted. If all else fails, throw money at it. What? (laughs) Okay, that seemed parenting 101. No, don't do that. That's a bad plan. Even if I didn't know where this story was going, which I mostly don't, but still, that just seems like a recipe for disaster. Serious? Oh, people. Okay, sorry. Oh, but Jordan, it gets worse. Oh, of course it does. Ron Jr.'s descent continued as he started working for his father, taking advantage of his position and indulging in reckless behavior. His father would pay him whether he showed up or not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yep, he did. Where can I get that job? I know, exactly. I wish I could Sign get paid for that job. <laughs> the tension at between father and son reached a boiling point culminating in Ronald Jr.'s threats to his father a stolen $20,000 deposit and a downward spiral of drug addiction and a few notable incidents are Deborah Cosantino a server at the Chatterbox where uh, Ron Jr. frequently drank with his friends said that he was usually a nice guy except for when he drank. She recalled him throwing bar stools and pool cues. Sherry Klein, his girlfriend at the time of the murders, spoiler alert, also recalls an incident when Ron Jr. went to her apartment with some friends. They became very rowdy and when she tried to calm him down, he shoved her across the room she reportedly climbed through a window and went to her parents' house to get away from him. Well, if that's not red flag behavior, I don't know what is. Yeah, this guy's a walking red flag. Uh, yeah, that's like not even red. That's just like neon flashing. Yeah. And you I, need to be away from people. Flag. I think this is probably the first time that we agree. <laughs> probably. I mean, that's that's about the only time that we've agreed on something yeah. here at All Things Mysterious. Oh, but it gets worse. Oh, goody. Neighbors described an incident with a woman named Miss Nemeth. She said that Ron Jr. accused her daughter of throwing rocks at a religious shrine that the DeFeos had in their front yard. When she insisted that her daughter wouldn't do something like that, Ron Jr. became angry and began yelling at her. He said that if she were a man, that he'd punch her in the face and that if her husband had a problem, he'd punch him in the face too. 
That seems like a super healthy coping mechanism. Good. Ash. That's what I usually do <laughs> when there's problems. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've threatened plenty of times to punch people in the throat, but I don't actually mean it. And I feel like this guy actually did. As she walked away, neighbor said he followed her and continued yelling. Yep, he probably meant it. <laughs> feel like he meant it. So the stage was set for a horrific event that would forever stain the history of 112 Ocean Avenue. There's a place <laughs> on Ocean Avenue. I'm sorry. You all get to hear me sing but every Jordan, time. I was singing, Matthew. Do you want to know what happened on November 13th? No, I was singing, but I guess yes. Good, because I'll continue. On November 13th, Ron Jr. left early for work stopped at a luncheonette to pass the time as he waited for the dealership to open. He left work early to meet his girlfriend, Sherry Klein. He also met with a friend named Bobby Kelsky. Now, does anything sound suspicious to you at this point? Yes, but strangely, I just can't pinpoint it. Well, we'll continue. He complained to both throughout the day that he wasn't able to get in touch with his family. Hmm. How about that? He said that all the cars were in the garage, but that no one was answering the phone. He even called home in front of his girlfriend. And then at 6 p.m., he was sitting in Henry's bar, which was not too far from his house. He, Suspicious. He tried to call home again and complained to friends about getting no answer. He said that he was going to go home and break into the house through a window. At around 6.30 p.m., he returned Wait, to the bar. Break into it through a window? Yeah. Does he not have a key to his own house? Apparently not. And I mean, I guess in the 60s, it probably wasn't unheard of for you know kids not to have I guess that's house. true. But still, that's kind of odd. But all right. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was got kind stuck of, on that. That was kind of the first thing I thought. But my guess is he just didn't have a key. And since he couldn't get a hold of them, he thought he, the door was locked. So he thought you'd have to break in. I don't know. Strange, but okay. Um, at around 6.30 p.m., he returned to the bar. He called out to patrons saying that his parents had been shot. A group of his friends left the bar with him. They went to the house and discovered that the family was dead. A friend of his, Joseph Yesser, called the police. The body of Ron Jr.'s entire family were found dead, lying in their beds, still dressed in their nightclothes. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Howard Alderman would later determine that the DeFeo family bled to death in their beds due to gunshot wounds. The murder weapon was a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. The parents were shot twice and each of the children once. God, that's horrible. And you say, you get mad at me for bringing up children, and here you are. Oh, it gets worse. Abby. Ron DeFaro Sr., age 43, was shot twice in the lower back. One bullet exploded into his kidney and exited his right nipple onto the bed. I mean, this is a horrible thing to say, but what aim, though? I don't know, but... That pains me. All I can say is my right nipple. Yep, nope. Gotta agree with you. That's just not... Okay, that's not right. Sorry, that... Oh, by the way, viewer discretion advice. 
little late for that, but <laughs> alrighty then. This is gonna this is gonna get gory, I think. Oh yeah, because the other bullet entered the base of the spine and was lodged in his neck. Ugh. The Pharaoh Senior could have been alive second a few seconds to several minutes after being shot. The waistband of his shorts was pulled down a bit, indicating that he had moved upward as he died. Luis DeFeo, age 43, was also shot twice. The bullets entered her right flank and chest. One bullet landed on the mattress and the other came out of the middle of her chest. Re-entered her left breast and wrist. The bullet shattered her ribcage, splintered bone, and destroyed most of her right lung, diaphragm, oh, and liver. God. Yeah. Although face down, her chest was slightly raised from the bed and her body was turned to the right. The medical examiner said that she could have been alive for several minutes after being shot, perhaps as many as 10 minutes. That'd be horrible. Yeah. Her position indicated that she may have woken up, raised her upper body off the bed, and possibly looked toward the bedroom door in the killer's direction. Now where's it, where it gets worse. Mark, age 12, and John, age 9, were both shot in the back of, in the back at close range. The medical examiner determined that the killer stood between the beds less than two feet away. The bullets penetrated the liver, diaphragm, lungs, and heart of each. The bullets went through the boy's mattress and into the box springs. John's spinal cord was severed, which oh, may have oh. caused involuntary twitching in the lower body. Oh my God. Yeah. How, how can you do that? I honestly don't know. Uh, I go bad. There's more. Uh, I'm sure there's more because you. Yeah, there's two more kids. Of course kids. there is. And then Matt, hmm. And he gets mad at me for bringing up children, but then he does this. Allison, age 13 was shot once in the face from less than two feet away. She may have turned around and stalled the muzzle of the gun. The bullet entered her left cheek and moved to her right ear. It then tore into her brain and damaged her skull. The bullet exited, ripped through the mattress, hit the back wall, and ricocheted to the floor. God, that's just horrible. We're almost there. Uh, I mean, I'm going to make it, but... Don, age 18, was shot at the back of the neck from two and a half feet away. The bullet entered just below, below her left ear and blasted through her left temple onto her pillow. The left side of, of her face collapsed. Brain particles mixed with the blood saturated in her pillow. Matt's not allowed to do these anymore. This is what happens when I get revenge. This is... Oh, Matt's not allowed... Matt's not allowed. This is... Oh, my God. Okay, fine. Finish. So Ron Jr. told the police that he stayed home from work the day before with an upset stomach. He said that he watched a late night movie, Castle Keep, starring Burt Lancaster, if you're interested. Never heard of it, honestly, but... Nope. Uh, I'm sure they were super thrilled about being, you know... Mentioned, Mentioned yeah. in the Amityville house. Uh... But he said he fell asleep around 2 a.m. in the TV room. He woke at 4 a.m. with pains in his stomach and said that he saw his brother Mark's wheelchair outside the bathroom door. 
his brother had broke his leg while playing football, so he had to use a wheelchair. Uh, he said that he saw the bathroom light on from under the door and heard the toilet flush. He said that he was well rested from the day before, so he decided to go to work. He ate at a lunch net, went to work, left early and saw his girlfriend and some friends. Pretty plausible alibi. A uh, little suspicious, but... Super uh, suspicious in my opinion, but okay. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know the whole backstory of him, that would seem like a reasonable explanation, right? Mm, maybe. I don't know. I don't like it. That's just me, though. I just don't yeah. like it. So at first, Ron Jr. claimed the murders had to have been committed by a man named Louis Fellini, which was the student. Um, he said, who Ron Jr. said was a mafia hitman. He said that a few years ago, Fellini and his wife had lived with his family for a little while after their house burned down in Brooklyn. He said that Fellini had a key to the house in which he buried a box of money and jewels. Ron Jr. also said that he had a violent argument with Fellini after Fellini and his wife moved. Fellini criticized a paint job that Butch had done for the dealership. He described throwing a brush at Fellini, breaking the window behind him. He also said that he called Fellini. Hmm. This is going to be good. This is going to be great. Good. You, you might as well just say it. I can see it by the look on his face. It's going to be great. You might as well just say it. Yeah. I don't want to get demonetized, even though we're not monetized, but we may be monetized at some point. So let's just say he called uh, Feeney a not so good name. Uh, All righty then. And we'll leave it at that. But. He said that his father had told him that Fellini was a professional hitman and that Ron Jr. didn't know what he had done by calling him names. Why do I feel like this is just the most ridiculous thing? <laughs> it really does like, sound like a like a random um, like you need to come up with a hit, you know boogeyman type thing and you just think of the first thing that you could think of. It really does. Like even if even if I was an officer and somebody told me this, like my first thought would just be like, okay, so instantly you already have all of this ready to go. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm sure if you've got an enemy, you would probably figure you would know who it was, but like, I don't know. I just feel like there would be something red flag about that. Oh, there's more. Oh, great. Goody. Cool. Good. Ron Jr.'s grandfather, Michael Brigante Sr., arrived on the scene with his son-in-law, Vincent Hershida. They were both asked about Ron Jr. and Fellini. His grandfather said that he knew Fellini and that he was a great guy. He said that he didn't know where Fellini lived and didn't know his phone number. He's described as seeming insulted when asked if he thought Fellini committed the murders. <laughs> when asked about his grandson, 
Brigante said that he was a wonderful grandson and that he was very proud of him. <laughs> Again, he's described as insulted when asked if Ron Jr. could have committed the murder. That's funny. Rashida didn't know who Fellini was, but said that he knew that Ron Jr. was involved with drugs. Rashida didn't think Ron Jr. was capable of murdering, you know, of committing the murder. We've got a nice little stack of red flags yeah. that would say otherwise, but okie dokie. So in an interview years later, Ron Jr.'s friend, Barry Springer, not related to Jerry Springer, said that at the time of the murders, Ron Jr. had been using drugs for five years and that the drugs were taking their toll on him, making him dangerous. Neighbors describe him as a wild teenager who was not all there. They thought he did commit the murder, obviously. Uh, I mean, now going back to the night of the murders. Same Z's, but okay. As police continued searching the DeFeo home, they found the 35 caliber Marlin rifle. It wasn't among the firearms in, in Ron Jr.'s room, but in a separate box with the 22 caliber rifle. Investigators learned that Ron Jr. was a gun buff and that in the weeks leading up to the murders, he was looking to purchase a silencer. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait a second. So if you're if you're going to be why just be smart. If you're going to be stupid, be smart about it. Yeah, but I mean, this is the 60s, so I mean. You can't really look on eBay or, you know, the dark web. So. I mean, that's entirely fair, but don't keep the same gun in the freaking yeah. house, you idiot. Well, yeah, that part didn't make sense. Uh, but I, I mean, maybe bury maybe, that shit in the yard. Maybe it's an expensive gun. I don't know. Freaking bury it in the yard or or I don't know. It, move it somewhere that's not the freaking house or something. I don't know. That's not smart. He was described as not being all there. So, I mean, he doesn't Still. sound like the brightest I mean, obviously, but Jesus, that's just, listen, I understand. And there may be a reason. I mean, of course, there's a reason. Of course, Matt thinks there's a reason. But still, still, I'm just saying, like, listen, I know that I'm not, I'm not a murderer. I'm not that kind of person. But like, I've looked at true crime. I'm big into the true crime stuff. We all know this. I typically do more true crime episodes than Matt does. And seeing as all the gore he just described, I think I'm going to probably take them over from now on. But I'm just saying, if you're going to do something like that, like maybe do smart things and like hide the evidence. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm done. Are you you done? Yeah, I'm done. Are you sure? Uh, Yeah, for the moment. I'll probably start again, but (laughs) for the moment I'm done. So after finding the murder weapon... Police focus their investigation on Ron DeFeo, obviously. That's good. Uh, police questioned him again. He continued to insist that they needed to find Fellini. When he was asked <laughs> if he ate dinner with the family that night, they found his attitude toward his family wasn't that of a grieving son and big brother. Uh, he had said that he didn't eat dinner with his family that night. When asked why, he said that it was because his mother, Louise, was a lousy cook and that she made some brown shit in a bowl 
for a dinner that he wasn't going to eat. When asked about wow. his family, he had nothing nice to say. He described his brothers, Mark and John, as fucking pigs. Okie dokie then. And mind you, this We're is- just going to add to some- <laughs> yeah. Add to that pile of red flags real quick. This is like beyond red flags. I mean, this is literally probably- hours after they found the bodies maybe not even hours oh it was my god right after they found the bodies and he's Hi. describing his family his brothers and his mom you know god's sake man yeah self-preservation you, you have zero of it do you know why he called them fucking pigs oh god this is gonna be bad isn't it it's hilarious oh no <laughs> he said that he shared a bathroom with them and that they left it a mess Usually with toilet paper hanging out of the toilet and shit on the back of the seat. Well, you know, that's kind of fair in that case, but still, still. How do you think he thought of his sister, Dawn? Well, I'm going to assume he didn't like her probably because he didn't seem to like anybody. And as you remember, Dawn was the 18 year old. Right. Trying to keep track of that. Okay. Yep. Uh. So he was asked about Dawn, which he describes her as a fat fuck who played her music too loud. Again, I will say it. Self-preservation. <laughs> he had zero. Come on, dude. Like, oh my God. Have some freaking just common sense. So... This okay. part you might you pay attention to. Okay, I'm paying. Because he said that when he yelled at her to turn it down, his father would intervene and hit him. So just keep that little nugget in the back of your head for now. Okay, his father would intervene and hit him. He had said nothing. Apple doesn't fall far from He had nothing to say about his other sister, Alice. Meaning he probably liked his sister, Alice. Well, I mean, he didn't hate her, which is... So, I mean, Apparently. he still shot her, so. Uh, I, don't know, I don't even know what to say about that. I don't even know. When asked about his grandfather, Michael Brigante Sr., Ron Jr. called him a cheap bastard and said that he took advantage of him and stole from him any chance he got by coming in late to work or leaving early. What in the... <laughs> says the man... Who shows up and doesn't even like doesn't even go to work and still gets paid for it? Like what? Yeah. What? So this is literally right after his family was killed. So you would think that someone wouldn't be focusing on all the negative at this point. Dear God. <laughs> Police told him that they found the murder weapon and the ammo. They also said that his family was determined to have been killed between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. So they could not have been killed while Ron Jr. was at work. He then told him one of many stories of what happened that night. One of many? <laughs> oh, God. So he had said that Fellini and an accomplice murdered his family and forced him to watch. Investigators then asked if he was forced to take part in the murders. They asked if the two men forced him to get his hands dirty, so to speak, and kill one of his family members. 
Ron Jr. put his head in his hands and told the investigators to give him a minute. He then said that Fellini and the accomplice weren't there that night and that it didn't happen that way. It was then that he confessed to murdering his family. But why? But why did he just cave? Something right. Yeah. Uh, it's not like he feels guilty about anything. No. <clears throat> and that's what comes interesting about the... So during his trial, his defense tried to argue insanity. Uh, with Ron I mean, Jr. It's not like he's sane in the yeah. head, so... Uh, Ron Jr. alleging that he heard voices and felt possessed. However, he ultimately confessed to the murders, earning him earning himself a conviction of six counts of second-degree murder. His change in narrative from blaming his mother to his sister Dawn only deepened the mystery. Whatever happened that night was taken to Ronald DeFaro Jr.'s grave. He passed away on March 12, 2021, at the age of 69. And an unrelated note, that's the year that I want to... That's the age I want to die, by the way. Why? <laughs> I know. Such a cool what? number. Get, of course, Matt. You're such a child. <laughs> I really am. Why do... Never mind. <laughs> he was... I, know, <laughs> I can't with you. I'm trying to be serious now. <sighs> serious. He was still incarcerated at Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York, when he died. Uh, so Ron Jr.'s life was marked by violence, abuse, and drug addiction. Turbulent upbringing and the toxic environment within his family may have played a role in the horrific events of that fateful night. But as the years passed, questions about what truly happened in the house linger, along with the memory of the DeFeo family and their ill-fated high hopes. Yeah, there were no high hopes in that house. No. Uh, now let's kind of fast forward a few years. Um, so although the brutal murders were sensational in their own right, it wasn't until the house was purchased by the Lutz family that the house, the home haunted its way into infamy. On a chilling December 19, a chilling December 18th, 1975, a brave family ventured into the new chapter of their lives when they purchased a house that would soon be, be soon become synonymous with terror. 112 Ocean Avenue. There's a place on Ocean. I'm sorry. Every time you say it. I'm literally saying it just for that. <laughs> uh, as they unloaded boxes from their moving trucks, <clears throat> a Catholic priest, Father Ralph Corio arrived to bless their new abode. Little did they know their dream home would become a nightmare. I mean, I could have uh, probably told you that. It's got all sorts of... Hey. What? Let what? me finish my sentence. No. Because I can just... Okay, fine. Stop. Their dream home would become a nightmare of epic proportion. Okay, now you... I could have told you it was probably a bad idea. Listen, this is how all horror movies start. Some stupid white family is like, oh, look at this house. It was such a good deal, honey. And like, look at all of the hauntedness of this house. And then the white lady is like, look at all the charm. And everyone else is like, this is a horrible idea. And then the white lady's like, no, it just needs some love. No, no, I no. 
How many people died in that house? Bad freaking idea. Bad. Bad. That's just my opinion. Sorry. <laughs> so the Lutz family, uh, led by the loving couple, George and Kathy, had just started their life together, blending their families into one. With Kathy's three children, Missy, Daniel, and Christopher from a previous marriage, and the addition of their own two children, Noel and Gabrielle. They believed they had found their sanctuary. Little did they know their stay would be short-lived, lasting only 28 days. Called it. <laughs> so the malevolent and malevolent and malevolent. 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 There you go. Uh, entities dwelling within their this house wasted no time in making their presence felt. They manifested through eerie sounds, unsettling touches, and even appeared before the family investigated. In a spine-tingling 2005 interview with Inside Edition, a swarm of flies materialized within the home, tormenting the crew. Ew. Seasoned paranormal investigators would tell you that swarms of flies have historically been associated with demonic entities and possession. Could the demons residing in this Ocean Avenue abode have been the sinister voices that plagued Ron DeFeo Jr.? Or was he was just, just psychotic? Yeah. Yep. Uh, or could it be both? So despite the police, uh, the police <laughs> priest blessing before their move in, the Lutz family experienced a series of horrifying paranormal events. George claimed to wake up every day at 3.15 a.m. The exact time that they thought the DeFeo murders actually took place. Uh, while Missy began communicating with an entity known only as Jody. Kathy even recounted a nightmarish episode of levitation above her bed, leaving painful welts on her chest. The children also reported inexplicable levitations during their slumber. George and his son, Daniel, witnessed a ghastly, ghastly apparition of a pig-like creature with piercing red eyes peering at them through a window. Oh, that's terrifying. That really is. Uh, For the record, we are not ever doing a ghost hunt here. Oh, we are 100% going to Amityville at one okay, point. Two things. We're broke. <laughs> two, absolutely effing not. Oh, we are going to go to Amityville. Demons. No, 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 no. Also, we're broke. Yeah. And you have children, child care. No. They're going to be little ghost hunters too. You're going to bring them along. No, 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 no. You could just see little Bailey with the little, <sighs> little camera on her chest. She'd probably be less fearful than me. She would. She would. She'd be braver. She'd be like, let's do this. And I'd be like, uh, no. Oh. Aunt Jordan's going to be like <laughs> running in terror. She no. honestly would. Brooklyn would be like you. She'd be scared. Yeah. No, ba me and Brooklyn, we're going to chill out in the car and <laughs> you and Bailey can go. It'll be a great time. And me and Brooklyn are just going to chill and hang out. It'll be great. Yeah. Bailey would literally go like be the first one in each room. <laughs> Yeah, she freaking would. And no, we're we're going to hang out. We're going to chill in the car and we're going to eat snacks and not be in the lion's den. Thank you. 
and just think when you're sitting out in the car, a pig-like creature will look at you through the window. Yeah, freaking might. You know what we're going to do? We're going to leave you there. <laughs> I will YouTube or Google or whatever how to hotwire a car and get the F out of there. I can just see you on YouTube searching how to hotwire a car quick. I don't care. I will figure this out. Watching a 20-minute video as a pig creature is watching you through the window. Don't care. I will figure it out. We will get out of there and go. I will be screaming and I will be panicking. But A, number one, I'm going to keep your kids safe. B, I'm going to keep me safe and we're going to get out of there. <laughs> Just so you're aware. Also, you'll hear my screams inside. <laughs> Probably my heartbeat too inside, but you know what? No, it's fine. Oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait. Uh, <sighs> Continue. So on January 14th, 1976, the Lutz family could bear the terror no longer. After enduring a night too horrifying to recount, they abandoned their home with all their belongings. Never looking back as they fled to safety. As their car sped away, the entities watched from the windows, their, their grip on the house unrelenting. So now let's get into the um, some of the investigations. One of the, the most notable one by Ed and Lorraine Warren. Have you heard of them? I feel like I have. They're probably the most. Do they have like a, a paranormal like group name or is it just Ed and Lorraine Warren? It's they're basically the the grandfather of paranormal investigation. They I were, feel like I've heard of them before. Yeah. I've, I've probably heard of them even just yeah. in some of my own research for different um, other topics on the show. But it was like the paranor uh, paranormal investigative society or something like that. Uh, I forgot the actual name of it. No, I think that makes sense because I think I've heard of him. Yeah. I, no, I, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. That makes sense. Yeah, they've done a lot of investigations like Annabeth. Uh, OK, no, I know. Yeah. I think I know who you're talking about because I knew that I, I knew the name sounded really familiar. Yeah, they I mean, they're literally the grandfather of paranormal investigation. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I know who you're talking about because mm -hmm. I've done some research of my own on different stuff and so recognize it. You know, they would later um, corroborate the Lutz's family's claims. After spending a night at the house, the Warrens concluded that this was no ordinary haunting. It was a solid 10 on the supernatural repair. I believe that. Uh, despite the skeptics, <laughs> despite <laughs> the skeptics who believe it was all a money-making scheme, George Lutz vehemently denied any hoax. In a candid moment from the documentary Amityville Horror the Hoax, he affirmed, quote, I believe this has stayed alive for 25 years because it's a true story. It's not a hoax. End quote. Uh, even in 2013, the documentary at Miamiville Horror, Kathy's son Daniel spoke of the nightmare. Spoke of the nightmares that continues to haunt him. Blaming, and he was how old when? Uh, it doesn't. In, he was pretty little though. Yeah, he was a little kid. Um, I vaguely remember him being. I think he was one of the younger kids. That's what I think. That's what he said. I don't uh, remember. But he blames the house for the torment he endured. And if you're skeptical, consider this. Both Kathy and George took polygraph tests to prove their honesty. 
about the house's horrors. And they passed with flying colors. I mean, all that means, though, is that they believed it. True. I don't... Don't even get me started on polygraph tests. Those are, like, the worst, uh, most unreliable test in the world. They are. Uh, But take it for what it is. I mean, it's evidence that, at the very least, they believe what they said. Uh, So, you know, it's obviously not a purposeful hope, if you will. That's fair. Uh, Now, there could obviously be other things, but... In February 2017, the Amityville house was sold to an undisclosed buyer for just over $600,000. A whopping $200,000 below the asking price. I was going to say, I feel like that's probably under market value. That really is. Uh, Now, the address has been since changed for privacy reasons. The 112 Ocean Avenue doesn't exist anymore. There's a place on (laughs) Ocean Avenue. I mean... If you guys ever want to hear some karaoke, you just let me know. I'm pretty sure... it doesn't matter what they change the address to. But anyways, it's probably still going to be on Ocean Avenue. Uh, but anyway. So obviously don't go trespassing because it's now private residence. Uh, the current owners report no paranormal occurrences, suggesting that the house lies dormant for now. So what do you make of this tale, Jordan? Was it an elaborate scam or a demonic entities lurking in the shadows? Waiting waiting for the opportune moment to strike again. Potentially both. And I think it could have been both. I feel like this family was already volatile. And then this house was already like horrible on top of it. And then combined together, it just like exploded, if you will, into straight up madness. Yeah. Like. And guess what? What? Regardless of your stance, one undeniable fact remains. Oh no. Six gruesome murders stained the walls of the Amityville house not too long ago, leaving behind a lingering presence that continues to send shivers down the spine of those who dared to delve into its terrifying history. Wasn't going to doubt you there. <laughs> just for the record. I just had to, I brought that in and kind of interrupted my speech. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, but Amityville is like such an interesting story to me. Uh, do I believe that it's haunted? I mean, I think a lot of the paranormal, you know, especially from there, because it is probably one of the most famous, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of the stuff from the movies are kind of, you know, obviously. I'm sure it's amped up for the movies yeah. too. Like uh, everything in the movies is turned up a few notches. But I mean, you know, six people were murdered recently in that house. There's they were. There's gotta be something, you know, I don't know if it's demonic or if it's just, you know, the spirits of the family who, you know. Well, and it could be both. Yeah. Like I said, like, what if it was just both that came together? Like, the family was already pretty volatile. Like I said, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, the father already was hitting um, yep. Ron Jr. Yeah, Ron yeah, Jr. He was already hitting him, and he already had some major personality issues and substance abuse issues <laughs> on top of that. 
and they obviously weren't the greatest parents mm -hmm. uh, on top of just the abuse in general. Yeah. So what if there was already some paranormal activity there? And we already know that typically paranormal activity just loves to make things more unstable. Yeah. Um, they, um, they, they kind of seep into it, if you mm -hmm. will. So what if they just latched onto that and mm -hmm. then latched on to Ron and just made everything a hundred times worse. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, and now it's, it's even more haunted. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the, you know, the fact that Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, kind of corroborated the story. Um, I mean, granted, even in skeptic circles, you know, they're not necessarily the most reliable, but whether what you believe in them or not uh they really are the you know founders of modern you know paranormal investigations well they are and i mean you're going to come across that in any paranormal anything mm -hmm. every paranormal anything is going to come with uh skeptics regardless of, of anything oh, yeah. there's going to be people who say that if you find a picture of uh, i don't know a ghost or an apparition there are going to be people out there who tear it to shreds saying that it's photoshopped it's a shadow it's yeah. um a trick of the light it's a malfunction of the camera everyone has some sort of excuse for anything paranormal that pops up yeah. that is anything that you know excuses the paranormal yeah. when most of us who believe truly believe that it is actually the paranormal out there oh yeah and you know I, I believe in the paranormal to an extent. Uh, I, I do believe that there are a lot of hoaxes out there and a lot of people just like, you know, making stuff up basically. Oh, I'm with you too. I'm sure there's uh, a bunch of tourist traps and stuff too. Oh yeah. But, you know, I've, se I've seen, I've seen a ghost. Full, you know, full body apparition. Like it was the freakiest thing I've ever seen. Was uh, it Fred? No, no. You've seen Fred too. Yeah, yeah. But I, he was just a shadow. That's like a shadow person, which is really weird. But no, like, um, well, well, I'll quickly tell the story of my, the first ghost I ever saw. Very fast. Very fast um, story time. So here in town, we got a hospital called Freeman Hospital. Yep. Uh, Been there many times. Before the remodel, before they changed everything, uh, used to go in the door, uh, go down a long hallway, mm -hmm. take a right. And then right on your left was some elevators that went down to the bottom floor. Yep, I you remember. Actually, you actually basically went in on the second floor. Yep, and then you kind of went down to the first. Yeah, yep. which was where like ICU and you know all that stuff was. Mm -hmm. So my dad, you know, when I was, man, this had to be back when I was 10, 11 years old. Uh, my dad was in the ICU. So me and my mom were there visiting him, you know. Uh, so we leave the ICU. It's probably 9, 10 o'clock at night, really late. Not many people in the hospital. Uh, we start walking to the elevator. There's this gentleman in front of us wearing completely normal clothes. I mean, he definitely like older, like style clothes. Like he like kind of had like a trench coat style thing going on. Okay. You know, like fair. an older style coat and a hat. Uh, but other than that, like completely normal. I mean, you wouldn't even think twice about him. You might think, Hey, he's wearing old style clothes. Yeah, you know? Right. Looks kind of odd, but all right. Whatever floats your boat. Um, so anyways, he's in front of us, the elevator doors open. He walks in, 
Elver, your door is closed. We're steps behind them, so we hit the button to um, open the open the elevators. Elevator shuts, and no more than it shuts. We push the button, and it opens back up. No one's in there. Yeah, that's that's a little creepy. Yeah, and I mean, looking back on that story, you know, the time leading up to it, you wouldn't have thought anything was wrong because I mean, it just looked like a normal dude. You know, he looked at us, you know, had a normal face. Like there was nothing like he was just a normal guy. Yeah. Just another person at the hospital going to see whoever. And he just walked into the elevator. And now the only thing that I can say that's weird, like, you know, looking back on it was the fact that he kind of just seemed to appear like he wasn't in the ICU really down in there most in that hallway was just secure hallways so you can't really go any further than the waiting room no it wasn't built like that yeah so he kind of just like appeared interesting but he wasn't in the waiting room with us so we never saw him in there so you know I mean you know even then we didn't really think much of it because you know he was in the hall you know walking to the elevator that's all we saw really right like all right cool but yeah, looking back on it, definitely was weird. And so I, I know that there's supernatural out there. Uh, but here's my problem with like a lot of the paranormal investigations. Like they're trying to explain something with science that can't be explained with science. I actually have to agree with you on that because there, are, I don't think there's a lot of things that science can explain when things are paranormal. I mean, yeah. the word itself says things aren't normal so how can you truly explain that with science i mean you can you know the science explains the natural world Mm -hmm. it doesn't explain the supernatural world now i will say that like a lot of the paranormal stuff is like really entertaining i think a lot of it is evidence of paranormal but it's not you know it's not like you're going to be able to find exactly what paranormal you know activity is right uh at least not with science i mean we may find out one day but i've got my own theories that we may go into another podcast but uh it's just you know i definitely believe in paranormal but i definitely believe that a lot of them are probably hoaxes uh this one i don't necessarily think it's a hoax uh because they really didn't I mean, they did, you know, they did obviously benefit a little bit financially with this. I mean, a little bit, but they still lost like 200000 on yeah. the house. That's a big financial loss. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I feel like if they truly wanted to, they probably could have ended up marketing it maybe as a paranormal something or another and maybe no. made something off of it. But still, I mean, if they really, really wanted to make something off of it, they could have gone that route probably, but still. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I believe in the paranormal. I'm kind of with you in the fact that there's plenty of people that are not plenty of people, but plenty of places that are going to fake it and exploit it. Um, But I don't think that every single place is that place. I really don't either. Um, But definitely Amityville is one place I'd like to visit. Um, Well, I'm not going to (laughs) go. Yes, you are. You just don't know yet. Um, but yeah, that's all I got today. Um, it was a great story. It really was. It was a great it's story. It's interesting, especially here. You know, it really I've, makes you think. 
I, I've heard a lot about the Amityville house. Um, obviously, I've seen all the movies. Great movies, by the way. Uh, I've actually seen one of them, believe it or not. Really? I actually have. Which and one? And I didn't. Oh, God, I don't remember. I was like 15 years old no. when I saw it. If that helps you. It, no, not really. I, it was in 2005. Well, I mean, they. Amity, I don't know. Whichever one came out around that vicinity was well, then, that. The, probably the remake then. It was. Yeah, it was probably a remake. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't sleep for like three days. <laughs> So, <laughs> but it, it's definitely really, you know, and I'll be honest, before I did the story, I didn't know a whole lot about the DeFeo family. And I knew I've heard of obviously the Amyville and the Hauntons and all that stuff, but it's yeah. really interesting to kind of hear the history of the house because and kind of understanding what I do happened. too. And, um, but anyways, on that note, I will leave you guys with one thing. And uh, I'll leave Matt with it as well. There's a place on Ocean Avenue. I really, 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 really was hoping you were going to say fuck Chester. <laughs> no, you guys get karaoke today. You're welcome. <laughs> Jordan, guess what? Matthew. Guess what? No, I'm not saying guess what? it. Guess what? No, guess what? no. Guess what? There's a place on Ocean Avenue. Fuck Chester. Matthew. Goodbye and have a good night. Thank you for listening to All Things Mysterious. Make sure to like and subscribe. All links to all social media are in the description below. As always, here at All Things Mysterious, we keep you guessing.